0: Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner. I'm the producer of the show. We're certainly glad to have you here this week, and I'm promising you right now, it is a great one. Before we jump into it, though, we're taking this month of August to celebrate the fact that we have surpassed 11 million downloads on the Typology Podcast. And we want to thank you, our listening audience, for listening, for sharing the word, for supporting the program, for sharing it with your friends. And we ask you to keep doing that. Would you please share it with your friends? Go to iTunes, if that's where you listen, and give it a a good five-star review. And please continue to tell your friends about it. Again, this week we are celebrating by revisiting some of our favorite shows from the past, and this week is Father Richard Rohr. Father Richard played a big part in the resurgence of the popularity of the Enneagram years back, and uh, he's here to speak with us about all nine types. Richard is a Franciscan priest of the New Mexico province, and he is the founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Richard is the author, of course, of Everything Belongs, Adam's Return, The Naked Now, Breathing Underwater, the amazing book Falling Upward, and Immortal Diamond. Richard is such a treat, and it's a delight for us to have had him on the show, and we're thrilled to share what was parts one and two in one episode together. You get it all right here today, folks. So without any further ado, this is Father Richard Rohr and your host Ian Cron.
1: Father Richard, welcome to Typology.
2: An honor to be with you. Thank you. I hope I can say something that's worth hearing.
1: Well, I'm I'm sure that uh, you'll have plenty to say for our folks that will be incredibly enriching for them and for me as well. So, I, um, I'm i not sure if you remember this, but the last time I heard you teach the Enneagram, and I've heard you teach three times, once in Assisi, when we were there together, yeah. once in Albuquerque, and then another time, the last, the most memorable for me was, you and I spoke at the same conference in the Bahamas.
2: Oh, yes. When M. T. Wright was there. Uh-huh. Yep.
1: And you and uh, me and Brennan Manning, uh, yeah. re- rest his soul. And uh, about seven or eight people, we got caught in that hurricane inside a house.
2: That's right. I didn't get away for four days. That's right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that was something, man. I um, I have so many questions for you, because in, in so many ways, you are the preeminent voice and pioneer of the Enneagram, both in the world of the church and the world of the of faith communities around the world, but also well beyond that and um, so i've got so many questions i don't know where to start so i'll just jump in with how were you first introduced to the enneagram
2: oh okay well that's the only reason i became well known because i was introduced to it so early so um you know some of the history how these jesuits brought it back from chile the eureka institute where they were down there studying in 1972 They came back, and as I was told, they taught it to a larger circle of Jesuits in their house in Berkeley. And it just so happened, one of that larger circle, I don't know if it was eight or nine, happened to be my spiritual director in Cincinnati. And, uh, you know, I was going to him in 1973, and I could see he was amazingly insightful about me uh, I mean, I almost felt he was reading my soul, and uh, so eventually I asked him, how do you come to such clarity so quickly? And he says, well, I'm going to tell you something that uh, I've just learned myself, and since I'm training you to be a spiritual director, uh, I'm, uh, let me share it with you. His name was Father Jim O'Brien. He's now deceased, a really holy, healthy human being, and I remember When uh, must have been, oh, the second time we were into it, I was able to see, without him telling me, that I was a one. And I always say it was like a veil fell. I drove back to the Franciscan house like a deer caught in the headlights. Oh, my God, this is so obvious. It's just a whole bunch of things fell in place. But I never had that frame and the frame was just so clarifying. And here I am, what, 40, 50 years later, and I'm still finding how true it is. But that's how I first learned it. And so, you know, those years until the mid-80s and the first books came out and Helen Palmers came out, we all kept to the code. The code was This was only to be taught from spiritual director to spiritual director, because if it was taught to the masses, to the hoi polloi, as it were, the fear was it would become trivialized, it would become cheapened, a psychological game, and in many ways that happened. But we did keep, most of us kept the secret, as it were, and then in the mid-80s when um, Helen came out with her wonderful book, I said, okay, the secret's out. So I taught it right here in Albuquerque in a parish hall, right? I'm looking at it now across the parking lot, and it was recorded. So for a lot of people, I was the first living voice. I, I didn't write about it. I made a, something like 10-set tape, but still we had cassette tapes.
1: I, I had it.
2: Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and uh, so many people learned it from that. And this is not false humility, it's just true. I go to anagram conferences and I'm given undue deference and respect. Not because I teach it better, I really don't. But because a lot of people learned it from me initially. And I think many people like yourself have far perfected the craft 40 years later. But uh, if they're going to give me this deference, <laughs> I'll try to use it for good. good. Thank
1: you. So you're a, a one on the Enneagram and you, you mentioned you are you were driving home feeling yeah. exposed and... Uh, yeah, good work. Right. And, and so, you know, lots of our folks are new to the Enneagram, just discovering uh, their type, their dominant type, if you will. And um, I, I my hunch is, is that they feel... Uh, a need or feel compelled to berate themselves, or uh, and so I'm wondering, how did you break loose from the the sort of the shackles of uh, of, of lacking self compassion on the journey with the Enneagram?
2: and you're saying that to the right person because we ones tend to be very hard on ourselves. So I, I doubted everything for the next ten years. It wasn't a debilitating doubt. I would like to think it. it was an enlightening doubt. But it was still a, oh, God, Richard, you're a phony. <laughs> and, you know, especially since people thought I was this spiritual master, and and then I would see how many of the good things that I supposedly did, I did for very mixed motives at best. So I just had my face shoved into my shadow self. But again, by the reason of having good parents and good Franciscan spirituality I think I was protected from any debilitating self-hatred but it still rears its ugly head to this day Mm. you know it's one of the characteristics of a one we're very hard on ourselves and as a result I'm sorry to say we can be very hard on other people
0: Mm.
2: the only way we get out of that trap is to stop nagging ourselves all the time you know so, uh, the anagram for me, has been a tool of compassion more than anything else. Not just compassion toward myself, but I can honestly say, I know as a one, we're judgmental by nature. I, I'm just not nearly or hardly judgmental. Of course, I'm almost 75 now, and I've had 50 years to work on this, but I just catch it. I catch it so quickly now, almost immediately, that... You know, as Thomas Aquinas said, uh, evil depends upon disguise. Mm. Disguise itself is good. And so my evil, the disguise, was torn away. What was, I was called zealous, hardworking, I was a little boy scout, you know, yes, sir, yes, father, Uh, just eager to please the authorities, got me through the seminary without any black balls, as they used to call them, and... uh, Little did I think those very things that I was being promoted for and admired for were the things that were souring my stomach, if I can put it that way. Mm. You know, uh, it's uh, it's a great insight. As I said on those very early tapes, it works for you, your Enneagram compulsion, usually through your 20s. You know, it gets you rewarded. It gets you promotions. It's what people think makes you special. And usually if you're on schedule, it begins in the 30s, but full blown by the 40s. I don't want to be too uh, neat about those chronological times, but it starts showing its ugly head that it, the very thing people love you for is killing you from the inside.
1: That's a tremendously important insight. And I, I think uh, what maybe one question I have for you is, there is a, really a tidal wave, culturally and in, in the church, of uh, just a tidal wave of interest yeah. in personality, identity, uh, uh, and I'm just curious as to what you think accounts for it.
2: Well, of course, now I'm going to talk like a priest, but I, I still am going to do it because I think it has validity. I think Christianity in particular, I can't critique the other world religions, but has, has not done a good job at all of giving Christian people their identity. It told us we earned it by good behavior. And um, I call it carrot-on-the-stick theology, Right. which is now catching up with Western Christianity, every denomination. There's no exceptions, as far as I can find. We didn't point people to... Their image and likeness of God, which was ontological, metaphysical, uh, uh, it was grounded. But we gave them the impression they sort of earned a holy identity instead of they were given from the very beginning. And that gave great fragility to the Western identity. You're constantly striving to prove yourself, to assert yourself, to define yourself. Now, up to now, and I mean till the 60s, we were largely able to do that through our group identity. I didn't know who I was, but I knew Catholics were the one holy Catholic apostolic church, and we were the true mother church, and all the rest of you were heretics. Well, that works. And every, every historical group, had its same storyline, you know. I don't know who I am, but I know I'm an Anglican, or I know I'm a Methodist, or I know I'm a Mennonite. Well, that then started to fall apart. The corporate identities, we started seeing their shadow too. That only began in the 60s. You've got to know we didn't critique things socially before the 60s. So we don't know our individual imago dei which gives us an ontological, metaphysical foundation of dignity that cannot be given to us and cannot be taken away from us and absolutely levels the playing field of humanity. Distinctions like gay and straight, black and white, Catholic and Protestant, American and Canadian or whatever. Just, they don't mean anything. (laughs) And in my opinion, this is our last grasp. Of trying to make those social identities mean something and for me again i admit i'm talking like a religious person but i think the only way out is the proclamation of the true gospel which says that everything created in human animal material is created in the image and likeness of a trinitarian and loving god and uh, that settles Almost every social question, (laughs) if we believed it Mm -hmm. and lived out of it, every social question we're facing. And this ability to pit one group against another, which Washington seems to be so good at these days, it just doesn't work anymore because people have a solid foundation and their foundation isn't, I'm not trying to pick on this group, but I picked on Catholics. So, you know, not because I'm a Baptist from Alabama, If that's all I have to hold on to, then I'm going to hold on to it with a vengeance. And being a Baptist from Alabama becomes your identity instead of being a universal child of God Mm. in union with all the other children of God. So we are, as you said, a tidal wave of obsession with identity politics. uh, And all I can say is something like the anagram can also be a game if it isn't leading you to this final discovery of what Thomas Merton called your true self hidden with Christ in God. It's Christian language. You do not have to use Christian language. But I I read the Bhagavad Gita, and I see the Hindus were talking about this 2,000 years before Christ. Uh, There's there's a self that is previous to this personality thing here. Uh, There's a self that's bigger and more solid, and most of all, that's why Carl Jung used a big S, it's a shared self. (laughs) It isn't an autonomous, independent, eccentric identity advertising itself as special. once, Once you find your absolute specialness, your absolute dignity, you don't have to waste a lot of time trying to assert it yourself. Mm. and as critical as I am of organized religion I'm very publicly critical I still think healthy religion healthy I don't know how much we have but healthy religion is the only way to discover the substantially universal
1: self mm. so I am uh, as you know I'm Thomas Merton is my hero and whenever I start to doubt uh, You know, when my faith feels like it's on shaky foundations, I go back and I read Merton, that four with a five, right? That head and heart. You know, when you try to cover up one, he gets you at the other. When you cover up that one, he gets you at the other, right? Very good. Um, So I remember sitting in St. Catherine's of Siena Church. I was 28 years old and uh, I was reading for the first time New Seeds of Contemplation.
2: Oh, that's the creme de la creme.
1: Yes, sir. And I, I, to this day, remember hitting chapter five where he's talking about how the horses give glory to God by just simply being horses, and the trees give glory to God simply by being trees, and weeping with just, oh my gosh, what an illumination of my faith, you know? Mm -hmm. So you speak so eloquently about the true self and false self. You've written about it in Falling Upward. You've got uh, actually a whole book dedicated to the the, the uh, immortal diamond, uh, which I loved. And I think it's a for, particularly for Protestants. It's a new idea. You know, uh, the the Catholic voice, of course, is now finally breaking through to to Protestants in wonderful ways. But I I would love it if you would explain to people what the false self is and the true self and what on earth the Enneagram has to do with it.
2: Let me start with your second question. Here's one reason I have found the Enneagram so helpful in retreat work and spiritual direction work. It so exposes the false self that if you can't find the true self, you you just are eternally unhappy with with who you are you see the mixed motives, as I called them before. So it's a great tool to exposing the false self, and therefore leaving the true self rising to the surface, if you're willing to see it, if you're willing to accept it. So very quickly, as you said, I talk about this mostly in my book, Immortal Diamond. The false self is simply who you think you are. And your thinking doesn't make it so. (laughs) Now that sounds like good Buddhist teaching, doesn't it? Well, it's good Christian teaching too, but the Christian contemplative tradition was lost. And uh, that's much of the function of our school here is simply to retrieve the ancient Christian contemplative tradition. And know that much that people now call Buddhism is Christian too, but we just weren't taught it. And Christianity once seemed to understand this much better. You know, I was just talking to a group from Oregon here this morning. They were mostly from a Catholic retreat house. And I told them, I said, you know, uh, I have St. Paul as one of my heroes. But one thing I can never forgive him for is for using the unfortunate word flesh to describe what I would call the false self. In the English language, the German language, most Western languages, the Greek word sarx, when it got translated, they used a word that connoted materiality, physicality, frankly, sexuality. So we we wasted much of the first 2000 years attacking the body self, thinking that was the self that had to die thinking that automatically the spiritual self would arise if we just punish this body. That's where our whole Catholic idealization of celibacy came from. Uh, you know, and we're, now we're seeing it has some good fruits, but it has a lot of bad fruits, too. And now we have the eyes to recognize those kind of things. Forgive me for that much historical introduction, but it sent us down a course that was fruitless, fruitless. And even counterproductive so that's why Merton the spiritual genius that he was was way ahead of his time in saying we've got to rename this because it's not the body self that has to die it's the fictitious self the manufactured self the concocted self you know what I called it in my latest class with the Living School I call it the floating self, because even faults, for a lot of people, connotes bad, you know. So, but floating, it means it's constantly changing. You're always grabbing on to what's cool now, what works now, what sells now, particularly if you're three or living in America. It's a very fragile personality. Constantly, the chameleon is constantly at work. But when you're never told that there is such a thing as a true self, an ontological, metaphysical, unchangeable, anchored self, that's the new word I'm now using for the true self, the anchored self, just using the word lately has made some people want to find that anchor (laughs) because they're tired of being jerked around. By the news media, by magazines, by everything, especially in this time of social media, we're creating a more fragile self than ever. Because, as René Girard's mimetic theory says, human beings are imitative to the core. I just got these new dark-rimmed glasses. I've never had dark-rimmed glasses in my life, and I can't remember, but I bet I saw someone (laughs) somewhere in dark-rimmed glasses, and he or she looked pretty good. And so, okay, next time I get glasses, I'm going to get dark-rimmed glasses. I mean, I'm ashamed to admit that, but I have to expose myself to help all the rest of us expose ourselves. We're all very um, manipulatable, maneuverable, changeable, vacillating. We're unanchored. And that's the job of healthy religion. So the true self is who you always were and still are and always will be from the moment of your conception. Now, Paul in Colossians uses that wonderful phrase that I use a lot, hidden with Christ in God. Christ being the external manifestation of the eternal God. Uh, that this Christ ministry gives us a physicality, a persona. And if you've uh, read my book on the two halves of life, you know that I also believe we've got to create the uh, floating self. That's the way you grow up. It's It works for you again for the first 25, 30 years. <laughs> and then If you're on schedule somewhere in your early 30s, certainly by mid 40s, you start realizing, you know what, this isn't me. It's just an act. It's just a game. It's just a pretend. It's a very humiliating uh, experience. Now, this is what John of the Cross would have called the night of the senses. When your senses stop satisfying you. It isn't yet the dark night of the soul. That comes later, if you if you pass the first dark night. But most Americans aren't even told about the night of the senses. They believe the fictitious self. And in fact, they're almost my age, and they're still dressing it up. Mm. You know, the, the, the almost the only remaining storyline in America is, if I win, I am right. If I win, I am true. Does that need much proof? after the last 18 months in this country. Winning is truth. That's a very, very (laughs) self-serving, fragile, and destructive worldview because most people aren't these big winners. So 9 out of 10 people lose. It's a a destructive, non-gospel view of the world, but we're stuck with it. Hmm. This is why I think the teaching of the true self, false self, for many people, is the foundational conversion
1: experience. Hmm. So what I hear you saying, and I, pff, that was brilliant, I, what I hear you saying is uh, something that I think is so important for people to know, which is people I hear them say, oh, I'm a six, or I'm a one, or I'm a three. And I, I, I always want to stop them and say, no, you're yeah. not. Yeah, that's, that's just a cover story. Yeah, comfort um, and, story. That's good. You know, the the other the phrase that I like uh and I love anchored self uh but the other one I love is James Hollis, who I think we're both fans of. Um Yes,
2: what does he say?
1: He calls it the provisional self.
2: Oh, that's good. I have used that too. I didn't know it was from him.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a lovely way of thinking. Yeah, it's good. It helps us in the beginning to uh yeah. you know, adjust to cultural norms and familiar family norms, but but that has to be we need to let go of the that's the right. the fiction of the one the the narrative fiction of the four or the five that's not who you are underneath it and i guess some teachers would use the word essence you you you've used the word we use the word true self uh, there is that uh, that original goodness uh, yeah. that that we carry and that for people to realize So the Enneagram is not just about finding your number and then now identifying with that. Now you've got another identity, right? It's actually just the first step of the journey toward dismantling it.
2: That's right. You've got to see it as provisional, as a concoction of your own self, and as too often self-serving. Although if you learn to be honest, it's also self-defeating. You think it's (laughs) self-serving. And uh, it because it got you this far, but that's why, as I say, in falling upward, the, the, um, the falling experience is so essential. The, the night experiences, of, as John of the Cross calls them, that the previous level of consciousness, the previous game you were playing, necessarily must fail you, must disappoint you, must fall apart must show its dark side. You know, when I finished watching this series on Vietnam, I said, my God, was America shown its dark side? What is it going to take? And yet, in 10 years, we if we learned anything from it, we've forgotten it. Mm. Yeah. So uh, that's another thing I like about the Enneagram. It not only allows us to critique individuals, but cultures and ethnicities and corporate situations. Hmm. We don't need to go down that. I just want to mention, you know, our center here is working with activists to try to get people to do the work of social justice, but from a free, happy place. And uh, the Enneagram has been invaluable in helping people understand that much that they even called their social justice zeal was actually just their personality at work. Oh, yeah. And it was often hard to accept. But when they did, they could do the same thing. But now with a much purer, more free-floating, in a good way, energy.
0: Mm.
1: So uh, I guess uh, just to wrap, because I think I'm going to ask you a question about the true self. Uh, But when we talk about the false self, just as a way to maybe put a, a wrap on it, I think right away of, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that word I is the word ego, right? Ego. Uh, So, you're talking about when Paul says that, he's not talking about annihilation or the, the... washing away of identity it really is to say i want to do you a favor
2: <laughs> very good
1: i want to get rid of that ego Is that is that kind of capturing what yes. you're talking about
2: thank you for finishing the thought i was supposed to finish before i tell people when they read paul whenever they read the word flesh just put in the word ego mm-hmm. it connotes physicality ego is an illusion but it's not bad it's just self-created and that's its fragility So um, when people can start recognizing the self that has to die, and I know we don't even like that language in our self-preservative mode, but Buddha talks about it even stronger than Jesus does. the same message. There's a self that has to die so that another self can show itself. And they all say that the self that has to die is a self you don't need anyway. You really don't need it, but you don't know it until you let go. Mm. And you find yourself in a bigger field you now.
1: Yes. So I, I'm thinking about Jack Kornfield now, uh, who, of whom I'm, I'm a great admirer of Jack's. And I, I love how he helps people understand that, uh, because there's a lot of confusion about the word ego between the world of psychology and the yes. world of spirituality. Sure. Uh, that in the world of you know psychology, ego is a neutral term. It, it just refers to the organizing uh principle around which one's identity becomes formed, a sense of self differentiated from others, etc. Yeah. Whereas the ego in the spiritual life, and the, it, whether you're a Buddhist or a Christian or Hindu, whatever, is this false, provisional, adapted self that needs to go in order for that uh, true self to emerge, and that it uh, the Enneagram helps uh, to expose or the, oh, there's that false self, that how it operates, and that's what's got to go.
2: Excellent. I couldn't have said it better.
1: Mm. So, um, for you, on a daily basis, because I think it's very easy to think about the Enneagram in the abstract or the theoretical. I mean, on a daily basis, uh, in your own life personally, and in your work as a spiritual director working with individuals, like, how do I get up in the morning and immediately begin to use the Enneagram as a framework or a blueprint for my own spiritual formation?
2: Well, here's where in my limited experience, I see it work best. If it can eventually reside in the back of your head, I'm again, not a brain scientist, so I don't really know what's in the back of my head. But but what I mean is, it can't be in the forefront of consciousness that everybody you see, you're immediately typing them now you tend to go through that for the first 6 months after you learn it but you got to lose that because then it, it's overreach it's overkill it's it's now you seeking control which is ego you know instead of letting go of control so when it can quietly reside in the back of your head as it were as an ancillary tool is something that, oh, this might be helpful now at this point in the conversation. Uh, maybe just for me and how I talk to this person. But sometimes, and when people are with me in counseling or spiritual direction, that, then I can more willingly do it. I think I did it twice this week where someone was coming to talk to me about a major issue. And maybe two-thirds through the hour, I said, um, do you happen to know your Enneagram number? <laughs> And both of them did. I was grateful. And uh, I said, let's unpackage that a little bit in terms of what you're telling me is your dilemma. And in the two cases I worked with this week, I can't, I mean, I only talked 10 more minutes. And those people left very satisfied. Thinking Richard was far wiser than he really is. But it's wisdom that in part I've come to through mastering the antegrams. It really is a tool for the reading of the soul.
1: Let's, um, because we have so many uh, new folks and knowing your time is limited, I'd, I'd love to just give some folks a little bit of uh, practical wisdom, Enneagram wisdom. If, if in a sentence or two, and we'll just maybe start at twos and work through triads for a second, just a sentence or two on a a word of encouragement and a word of warning or a holy warning, you know, uh, spoken with compassion um, to each of those types, and and particularly in light of what we're living in these days, you know, which is something else. Um, So beginning with two is just a a sentence of encouragement, a sentence of warning in their journey as they move toward the true self and and, uh, toward becoming who they truly are. The word of
2: encouragement that comes to mind and I know it'll sound like I'm feeding their compulsion, but I still would want to say it because it's their best self. Is I want you to trust your deepest heart, your deepest heart. Now, the word of warning is that what you're accustomed to is your superficial heart. <laughs> and you better learn to distinguish between the two of those because your superficial heart which you've been taught is your heart, usually isn't. <laughs> it's it's far more the codependent heart, and that's not going to get you where you need to go or where you even want to go. Now are you going to go through all of them?
1: Well, you could give a quick one. I, I just think it's so important for people to hear your wisdom, but also these words of encouragement and caution um, yeah. in, in, because I, these compulsions are—the the paralytic grip, the, the arthritic grip that they have on our lives is so powerful. And, and this is such a, an important message for, you know, for, certainly for Christians, but beyond, too. And so, very quickly, well I, I, one sentence, if you like.
2: Let me just back up what you said, uh, knowing a lot of people who listen to us are, were raised Christian. It's no accident that these largely became called the capital sins. That even Christianity was recognizing there's some major traps that human beings get caught in. And all we were doing was naming the seven capital sins and adding two more that were even more invisible. So if you're a three, I first want to affirm you, we just love you for how you get things done, how you make things happen. And I did not want to discourage you from doing that. If I hadn't had threes around me all my life, neither of the two places that I'm credited with founding, the community in Cincinnati, the center here, were 30 years old in two weeks. But I've always had wonderful three administrators who knew how to take my message and make it work, make it happen for people. So don't doubt that in yourself. But when morning, when you recognize that that's the only way you're getting your energy, is by another success, another success, more productivity, more efficiency, more effectiveness, and the praise that comes from it. You better know you are now an addict to motion, an addict to motion. It's the very movement itself that is keeping you going. And it's all the more dangerous if you're doing good things. Like I know a lot of clergy who are threes, and they're doing good things, but they're dying inside because they become so superficial, substituting their human doing for their human being. Four. I've always had a love-hate relationship with fours. I have so many best friends who are fours, actually. But they wear me out emotionally after a while because they're so emotionally subtle That um, they're always taking you places or groups, places that we aren't ready to go or we don't want to go or we don't even understand. But I want to tell them to trust that creativity, first of all. But don't be surprised at the common pushback that you're going to get. Because you are creative people, you fours. But the rest of us, it takes a little longer to catch up. <laughs> with your right brain, with your musical skill, with your poetry, and so a lot of people resent, frankly, make fun of fours. Um, and I don't think that's deserved. I really
1: don't. I, uh, growing up, uh, clearly a four with a three, and and now very much a four with a five. Um, oh no, and, that's. And- too- normal
2: yes to go to the other
1: side yeah and uh and I think in part that was my deep love for merton yeah
2: he'd be your perfect mentor there that's right
1: when I went to Gethsemane I tell people this sounds like a very fourth thing to have done but I went and I visited his grave and I uh, was not at all in a melancholy state I was feeling perfectly fine I've been around the enneagram now since the early '90s, and I, you know, I can catch myself. I, I know when I'm going off on the romantic, you know, yes, yes. uh, self enamored with my own feelings and you know whatever. Uh, but when I stood in front of his grave, I wept. I was absolutely overwhelmed with mm-hmm. emotion, and partly because I felt eh, he got me. <laughs> <laughs> he would have gotten me as a person, you know. Great, let's move to fives. One reason he was so healthy is.
2: He had developed clearly both wings, the three and the five, just as you have. Okay, the five were jumping over to the head space. I'll tell you, fives took me the longest time to love. And that's because they don't give you a lot of handles on, on loving them. The other reason, quite frankly, is so many of my seminary professors were fives and sixes. And so many of them, forgive me God, were such curmudgeons. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what other word to use, but just, you know, they'd step out and teach you Greek and Latin and poetry, and, and they just felt so inhuman. So it took me a while to see the gift in that because I was so prejudiced against it. But only as I came to find a need for calm, detached advisors, people who... Uh, didn't jump to conclusions, didn't too quickly identify with dualistic either or, did I come to deeply appreciate the calm detachment that fives bring to so many situations. And what I saw as cold detachment, now in my second half of life, I appreciate as calm and even loving detachment. So um, honor that in yourself, and don't let yourself be written off, but do know that one reason a lot of people don't latch on to you is because you, you give them very few handles. <laughs> we look for face, we look for eyes, we look for smile, we look for teeth, I'm afraid. And the five doesn't feel any need to do that, more often than not. Mm. It's their gift, but it's their curse. Six, which most of us say is the biggest number. I don't know if you've experienced that, Ian, but... Years ago, when many of us who taught it got together in this particular group, we agreed that we had all found more sixes in our experience than any other number, some going so far as to say half of the human race. I don't know. But when I see the world's preoccupation with military hardware, how easily we can be seduced by fear. Ah. I'm not sure our own president now is not a counterphobic Six. It's just, it's it's an evil that just goes under all kind of other names. And that's why people can't see it as fear. It looks like patriotism, it looks like loyalty, it looks like obedience, it looks like law and order, which are the very words uh, Sixes love to use. A lot of them become clergy because that gave us a platform to you know, impose law and order. And a lot of them became lawyers, too, for the same reason. And I've had a lot of lawyers tell me that personally. It actually, I'm not saying they should, but I know a number of lawyers who left the field after they discovered they were—they had become a lawyer because they're a six. They had put their salvation in law. It helped me understand why both Jesus in the sermon on the mount and paul and romans and galatians especially do such a tour de force against law because so many people think conformity is the same as love it's going on in our country right now confusing patriotism with love for your country (laughs) those are very different but it's a common mistake in all religion and all people who don't have much self-knowledge um, but especially true of the six. Mm. And, of course, as you know, the counterphobic six is so out of touch with his or her fear that they charge into it with bravado. They're known as bullies, normally. Uh, and you know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It's, a, uh, it's a country we're all living inside of. You know, And they don't see any problem with that. You know, They think all truth is achieved by charging at it. And people are going to submit. Now, the amazing thing is, if half the human race is six, they're darn it. They're half right. <laughs> All the sixes are going to go along with any tyrant who speaks strongly. Because they that takes away their anxiety. It takes away their self-doubt. Just speak. I have the truth. I'm going to make America great again. And we believe it. Seven my other favorite number is seven no nine seven and four i like all three of those but as you know as a one i tend to see the cup half empty and (laughs) love sevens because um, our, our center right now our ed is a young notre dame grad who's a marvelous brilliant seven and the good energy he has brought to our entire staff of almost 40 people is phenomenal because he makes the best of everybody's gifts and this is the gift of the seven they see the cup half full and the world needs them for that now I know it can be naive I know it could be ungrounded I know it can therefore sometimes be dangerous that there are things that deserve critique and they are so Pollyannish that they can't see it And I've seen sevens make severe mistakes for being too much uncritical, too positive. They almost need their six wing. But I still love sevens. Uh, My own father was a seven. So that's probably one reason I had a very positive German farmer father.
1: Hey, Typology Tribe. I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors for helping us bring you what I hope is great content every week. Now, you all know I'm a big proponent of counseling, so whether you feel like something is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving certain goals, counseling is a great tool to help identify what those blocks are and then work through them. Yet, you and I know finding a therapist can sometimes feel intimidating, but not with BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers online counseling at your own time and your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus text and chat with your therapist when it's convenient for you. These are licensed professional counselors who specialize in things like depression, anxiety, stress, Relationships, LGBT matters, trauma, and grief. BetterHelp has counselors available worldwide and have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And get this. If you're not satisfied with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time at no additional cost. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. I want you to start living a happier life today. So as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com typologypodcast. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash typology podcast. T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Our mutual friend, Rob Bell is a seven yes. and oh, CBS seven. Yes. Oh my gosh. He, we, I had him on, I had him on our very first episode and it was electric. It was amazing.
2: They can wear you out, but they delight you at the same time. Yeah. The eight, uh, for many people, the most disliked number, and it's unfortunate because they do have a, a high bullshit detector that the world needs. And I know we get tired of them seeing bullshit everywhere, even where it isn't sometimes. And they're almost identified with their bullshit detector and they glory in it. And that undoes them when they feel a need to expose everything's phoniness, everything's artificiality. So we got to warn them against that. Not everything is phony. Not everything deserves to be exposed by your brilliance. But we still need them as truth speakers. You know, we use that phrase so much today, speaking truth to power. If we didn't have Martin Luther King's, if we didn't have even Fidel Castro's, I know that'll upset some people, but it takes people with that kind of courage to name at least the bit of truth that's there. Maybe they overdo it. Maybe they take it too far. But... uh, you know, there is a reason that Cuba has the best health care in all of the Western Hemisphere, huh? so give him credit for that. But mm-hmm. uh, what he had to do to do that uh, was uh, maybe a little excessive eight energy. Who knows? Uh, still eight energy. Uh, I'm never sure if Martin Luther, since we're about to celebrate him, if he was a one or an eight. What do you think? Do you Have you ever analyzed Luther?
1: Hmm. I think uh, arguably an eight, given his, uh, you know, uh, his what I would call guilt-free delight in the him. world. You know, he, the yeah. beer drinking, the excess, the, you know, sin boldly and, you know, that kind of energy.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that's what undid him. You know, I did a conference right before I turned 70 with the Lutherans in Switzerland. And the title of the conference was, Was Luther a Mystic? And the consensus among these Lutheran theologians, I wouldn't have dare said it, they said he started as one. He clearly had some early Christ experiences. But then in the second half of his life, his anger so controlled him that he became a dualistic thinker himself. That was their analysis. Hmm is unfortunate, and of course we Catholics have to take blame for that because we painted him into a corner, where he had to defend himself. And you paint an eight into a corner, and they come out with claws, bears, as you know. Yeah. But my guess would be Luther was probably an eight. Yeah, it's true. Calvin maybe more a one.
1: Yes, the- I think I think that's that's probably true.
2: Calvin more a one. Yeah. Okay, did I say good and bad on them? Yeah, I guess I did, nine. Well, you know, I didn't develop my, speaking of Merton, I only did Merton's Hermitage when the abbot offered it to me after I gave that retreat in 1984. I went down there Easter time in 85. And uh, I think it was the first time as a one that I gave myself freedom to develop my nine wings to just be a hermit for 40 days. I could stop saving the world, making recordings, writing books, preaching all around the world. I could turn off that whole two motor that had to help, 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 help everybody, save everybody. And I think I've been a much healthier person since I've developed my nine wing. The nines are the harmonizers, the peacemakers. They don't need to assert themselves. They don't need to be right, like we ones do. It's my salvation. And it's really, as you know, the gift of the nine is often called serenity. I live here in a little hermitage. It's just a little, very tiny little house. Uh, And I have to say, most of my days, unless I allowed myself to be pulled into an angry judgmental emotion, I'm very serene. And from that place, I can write, I can teach. That's my nine wing, but by the same token, having worked with many nines, I know the inability to take needed initiatives. You know, like friends say, they never call them. They never come over. They never, uh, they just always expect the, the start energy to come from somewhere else. And this makes a lot of people give up on nines not take nines seriously, and allow them, frankly, to be invisible. I have a brother and a sister who are both nines, and they have talked (laughs) to us so honestly about this that they felt like the forgotten members of the family because they don't insist on being noticed. Yes have to tell them that
1: i know i'm married to a nine and i i'm the father of a nine and of course they are the sweethearts of the enneagram but they oh <laughs> my gosh absolutely all right so ones because now you're going to speak with real authority into the life of ones as being one yourself
2: yeah we're um, you know i find that almost everyone i've worked with had i don't mean to psychologize this too much but we almost had one or the other parent whose love was very conditional. For me, that was my mother. Now she loved me deeply, I was her favorite, but I had no doubt that I had to earn and prove myself worthy of being her favorite. So I became a good little boy. And I have seen that pattern so universal in ones that we believe there is no grace. There is only meritocracy. That is so in our hard wiring to merit, uh, favor, friendship, reward. It, it This is why I talk about grace and mercy so much because I have to fight through to that. My natural world is to live in a quid pro quo world of reward and punishment. I'm ashamed to say that, but it's still deep in my hard wiring. And if I hadn't known the gospel, if I hadn't joined the Franciscans, uh, and by the grace of God had some years of prayer, I don't think I'd know that. That, that world of meritocracy, quid pro quo dualistic thinking, framing the entire gospel in terms of reward and punishment, is uniquely the worldview of the one. It's, it's almost destroyed the gospel. It really has. You know, you've heard my new dog here. She's just a week with me today. I don't know if you heard her bark. Carmella, you want to show your face on screen? Oh, yes. (laughs) Maybe she'll come. But, you know, I realize how I'm training her these days is by strict reward and punishment. She's a boxer, so she likes to jump up on me and box with me. The first days I was engaging with her, no, no, pushing her away, which she took as fun. I'm boxing with her. It just wasn't working. So, there's someone on our staff who's a dog trainer. They said, Richard, it's simple reward and punishment. What she wants from you more than anything else is your affection. Just turn your head like this and just hold it no matter how often she stands there until she goes down. And once she goes down, just give her all the affection you can. In 24 hours, that little dog, she isn't up on me right now. 24 hours. hours. Reward and punishment works for dogs. It really does. But we tried to raise Christian people like dogs. Simple reward and punishment techniques. And it kept many of our people as one would want to do at that lowest level of morality. Hmm. Promise them heaven, threaten them with hell, and this is going to create high-minded people? I don't think so. It just doesn't work. But that became so clear to me yesterday when i saw myself all day doing reward and punishment
1: <laughs> amazing I'll,
2: I'll bring her over here where are you carmela come here come here all right. <laughs> you'll see her box her face Ian wants to see you
1: Ian wants to see you <laughs> Oh, <laughs> oh! Look at that moosh. She's cute. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic.
2: Oh, she people. is
1: dear big. Oh, so sweet. Yeah, she's
2: big. She's wow. got the body of a, a lab, but the face of a boxer, mm. or maybe a pit bull. I'm not sure. Where, where anyway. did
1: you Where did you get Carmela from? At the local shelter. Okay, so she was already named Carmela. It was exactly. Six weeks tomorrow
2: that I had to put down my dog of 15 years, so I allowed myself six months of mourning, and I mean that. We mm-hmm. were close. I was finally ready to let another one in the house, so she's already filling the the gap. Yeah, she'll so not be the other one, but she's good. We yeah.
1: lost two dogs last year, and just uh, I will tell you, you know, I my dad and I had a complicated relationship, but he was a human being. When, but when I lost my dog Wendell. I uh, literally, I, I, was, I mourned more deeply and more powerfully than I did over the loss of my dad. It, it was so profound.
2: You're the 10th person to tell me that. And they always say it as you probably, with a little bit of guilt, that I shouldn't feel that way. But they mirror you every day. So perfectly.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. I, I love them. Well, Richard, I I want to again honor your time. I know how busy you are. I could talk to you for days, but I but the last very quick. This could, you could answer this very quickly. Sure, go ahead. Um, you know, there's a whole new generation of Enneagram teachers emerging now. I'm an older part of that maybe new generation, and my my enthusiasm the last few years has it's given me a whole new purpose, you know, and a whole new sure. sense. Now, I. I I am not I have not turned the Enneagram into a religion. In fact, I'm always talking people off the ledge of the of Enneagram. I call them the Enneagram Taliban. You know, they just they they get hold of this thing and they just, you know, overprivilege it and go crazy with it. Um, but if you were to give a word to the teachers, this new generation of teachers, of encouragement and warning, what would it be? Don't be
2: so afraid. I, I'm not saying you should introduce it early but don't be afraid to introduce notions of grace or God because otherwise all you can do is use it as an engineering tool as a technique as a formula what grace does what any honest notion of God does is open up the frame for action from other sources or energy from other sources that I don't have to do it all I don't have to make it happen by my soul energy and well, you know I've been invited several times to she's chewing on
1: something forgiven no go for it I know that I know the struggle oh no no what, what did she get a bowl <laughs> <laughs> Carmilla, you're terrible no you're not uh, what was I saying uh, you were talking about uh, not, not being afraid to use language yeah. of God and grace. Grace. Uh,
2: once something becomes too formulaic and the anagram has that temptation, it puts all the energy back into my expert use of this formula. Whereas if you can leave this field of non-knowing, of non-controlling, uh, of allowing, of surrendering, use any of those words. You've just done yourself a great favor. And the reason I was asked to give the keynote at several of the historic uh, anagram conferences, they told me right up front, they said, because you're not afraid to use the G word, the God word or the grace word. And most of us can't get away with that in sophisticated American society. For me, God is another name for reality. It's when you give reality a face, a a personification, an inner face. And that's perfectly orthodox. Uh, My last book was on the Trinity, so you might recognize.
1: Well, that idea of the the real, by capital R, the holy real.
2: Yes. Uh, Once you say that to people, they, they stop being so afraid of you that you're trying to impose some monarchical male deity on them. And if they only knew, that's not what I'm talking about. Certainly not a monarch, certainly not male, and not any of their historic understandings of a deity, you know? And that's why, for me, the, the divine dance or the Trinity theology is so important, that God is much more a flow, much more an energy, much more a, a verb than a noun. And that's Orthodox Christian theology. I can say that to you. Mm -hmm. But even most clergy don't even know that. They preach as if they're talking about a monarch who's sitting on a throne somewhere and is usually pissed off. Uh, No wonder most of the world has thrown out this notion of God. So once I convince that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about God, then a lot of times people can uh, listen with a little more open ears. So I would just encourage Anagram people to find what is their honest notion of God. And if they're allowed by their own conscience or truth to use it, don't be afraid to use it. Mm. So you're finally doing people a favor. You're not binding them up. You're, in fact, putting them in the biggest possible field possible. <laughs> uh, reality, reality. And reality is the greatest
1: ally of God. Yeah, you know, I just, uh, I know I promised to be <laughs> brief, but I can't help myself. Um, I, I think about two things. One's a question for you, but one's a reaction to what you just said, which is, I've come to understand God in my limited mind um, as a, that, that God is a field or an environment. Okay. In other words, that that God is a conscious, aware, personal environment or field in which we live, move, and have our being. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: See, that's Trinitarian. Don't don't feel guilty about thinking that way. Yeah. But most Christians, including most bishops, do not are not Trinitarian. They aren't. <laughs> mm.
1: So in, in closing, I, I I guess the thing I'd say, this letting go theme, which again you Brilliantly uh, introduced to your work with twelve steps, uh, sort of exegeting the twelve steps for everybody, and and uh, uh, lots of your other work, uh, your book *Letting Go*, Um, uh, centering prayer, practice of meditation, which is so important with the enneagram to work it into the warp and woof, into the bone and marrow or the blood. Uh, Maybe just a quick word, you know, just telling people or or perhaps uh, perhaps disagreeing with me uh, but i don't think you will uh, that, that 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 is where the work so much of the work gets done in the
2: work of prayer is that what you say well,
1: in prayer but also of letting go and also this dismantling of the false self oh yeah yeah and again
2: it, that is something that is done to you you don't do it mm-hmm. that is key and that's why our mystics talk so much about surrender or kenosis, self-emptying. It's not a learning as much as it is an unlearning. As the cloud of unknowing would have said, and Dionysius would have said, it's much more an unknowing than a knowing. And I was just reading Meister Eckhart early this morning. My, that guy was brilliant. Oh, yeah. Oh, he says it in, you know, dozens of ways. The line you're familiar with is, I pray God to rid me of God which naturally a dualistic thinker thinks is heresy. He's just pure genius, because your notion of God is never adequate. And you've got to get rid of your present one to, to allow God to be bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And, the, you know, we've created Western atheism and agnosticism by peddling this puny, puny, usually violent image of God. Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking. Really. Yeah, it is
1: well Richard again I'm honored our our people are enriched and you have been such a source of uh, since the late 1980s when I started to listen to those cassettes you're too humble Uh, and uh, when I first came upon uh, the Enneagram uh, that your book at a Catholic retreat center in Denver Colorado and uh, that was uh, almost uh, not unlike my experience with the chapter five of New Seeds of Contemplation where it, it, it helped me to see yeah. uh, and have ears to hear something new that uh, maybe uh, helped me come to myself. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not there as much as I'd like to be by a long shot. I'm not
2: either. I'm not either. But yeah.
1: little by little, but uh, yeah. with the help of really great sages like yourself. And so, thank you so much.
2: Most welcome. I'm, a, I'm honored to talk with you. Thank you. I hope it enjoys much success. It deserves it. Thank, you, thank you so you. much. And Peace. Peace, brother.